Exercise doesn't have to be painful. Your diet doesn't need to be bland and boring. It's time to have less pain and move more and learn how to be better to yourself. Welcome to Pain-Free Day with your host, Joshua Cohen. In this program, you'll learn the pain-free way to eat, the pain-free way to exercise, and the pain-free way to live a better life. Now, here's Joshua Cohen. Welcome back to Pain-Free Day. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Cohen. Today, we have a very exciting interview with Dr. Amy Lee. She is a physician who specializes in obesity and nutrition. Uh, we're going to have a fascinating conversation about intermittent fasting. We've covered some topics concerning intermittent fasting, but Dr. Amy Lee is a specialist in it. So I'm very curious to get some very good advice from her and very good information about exactly what intermittent fasting is and why we should do it. So hello, welcome, Dr. Amy Lee. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It is our pleasure, my pleasure. So first off, why don't you, uh, can, you talk, can you tell the listeners about your background? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I live in the West Coast, and like you mentioned, I uh, am a physician here, and uh, as a practicing internal medicine doctor who specialized in obesity medicine and a certified physician nutrition specialist. So I basically focused my whole practice uh, around the active nutrition therapy and how that can help with various uh, conditions uh, for patients that I see on a daily basis. Um, but otherwise, I personally am, you know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, grew up outside of Seattle, went to school there, and then finally sort of moved down here to Southern California, where I now live and reside. Well, how did you get into nutrition? Because uh, from what I know and what I've experienced, most medical doctors don't really pay attention to nutrition. I've even heard some kind of like brushing it off saying, you know, saying, oh, your nutrition, what you eat has nothing to do with your health. I know that's more of an older perspective, but I'm kind of curious, how did you get into nutrition? Um, I think it probably really started off as sort of a childhood personal insecurity as sort of like a mildly overweight kid myself. Um, especially growing up in the Asian culture uh, with all your siblings to be super petite and small and you look around and I'm a little bit taller, I'm a little bit thicker boned, uh, or at least that's what they called it. Um, And it just made me, you know, kind of become more aware of my surroundings. And I even remember watching my two older twin sisters eat and perhaps I felt if I follow what they ate, then I will look like them. Um, but of course, it took me many years to realize that so many different factors play a role in how we look, how we feel, and how food and lifestyle change makes this huge impact on our everyday lives. So I always have been super aware of um, lifestyle and nutrition, and I found myself being super interested in everything I read, even in medical literature, anything to do with nutrition therapy and treating disease state. Um, so with that kind of sort of innate passion and my personal experiences, uh, I gravitated towards this practice uh, when I was, you know, during my training at USC um, and found myself uh, basically uh, presented with this opportunity of learning how to practice nutrition medicine uh, with my background. So I guess I got lucky and I sort of accidentally got into it. But once I was in it, it made total sense. Uh, because it really allowed me to practice with a, a different alternative uh, approach 
um, as well as using conventional uh, medicine, of course, and what I learned from um, acquiring my medical degree. But it's, I think it's a huge advantage on my part because I'm able to uh, use a different uh, modality in treating something that could be so standard like hypertension and diabetes and whatnot. So that's how this whole evolution came about. Oh, that's very cool. That's, <clears throat> I had a similar experience where uh, I have a degree in nutrition and, you know, but how I came into that was just through high school and college and playing sports. And my father was a chiropractor. I was exposed to, you know, healthy living, but at the older that I got, the more I got into it myself and the more I wanted to pursue it, the more I saw how better I, how much more I realized how much better I felt when I was watching what I ate. And I got tired of, uh, I had a lot of medical doctors in my family, of healthcare physicians, and a lot of them would say, oh, do as I say, not as I do. And I think it's really hard to take advice off of somebody who doesn't look like they're, you know, practicing what they preach. You know, I say to my patients now, you know, the, you know, the doctor that's overweight and smoking a cigarette and telling you to lose weight, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of, it doesn't, it's not too pertinent now. You know, it really doesn't kind of uh, click. People have a harder time relating to it. Yeah, and we, you probably understand me, and I know your background is uh, chiropractic medicine as well. And um, I had a chance to, you know, rebuild my practice during my career, going from private practice to going back to academics. And then I decided, you know what, those are the conventional practice is just not right for me because they ignored this alternative option for a lot of our patients. So uh, in my later years, probably I don't know about seven years ago, I actually got together with a group of integrative health practitioners like yourself um, and, uh, and, of course, PTs and, and shifts, and we got together and rebuilt a practice, and this is what we did, you know, for a few years, and it made total sense because we spoke the same language, you know. I want to practice conventional medicine with a flair of nutrition, and my chiropractic uh, colleagues uh, basically stepped in and said, look, I got a bunch of patients who have a lot of pain issues. Um, that really need your help, but yet at the same time, they need to continue on coming in to engage with me for the long, uh, the chronic treatment that it requires. So, yeah, it makes total sense. That, I, I agree. And it's like, you know, what you start seeing, what I started seeing is like, you know, how much lifestyle affects these things and how, you know, certain parts, traditional parts of your profession, traditional parts of my profession kind of ignored different areas of health, like nutrition, like exercise, that really can make such a big difference in patients' lives. You know, and I always kind of say, it's like, you know, you may need to take, you know, some medication, you may need surgery, but let's try this stuff first. Let's see if some of these other, you know, more conservative, less invasive procedures, less invasive, um, you know, therapies work first, and then we can move on to the more invasive things. But, you know, if just changing around how you eat makes a huge difference in how you feel, I mean, that's kind of a win as far as I see and pretty, you know, relatively easy to do, but not necessarily easy to do. Yes, I totally agree with you. So now how did you get into intermittent fasting? Uh, intermittent fasting is one of the many regimen and, you know, that's part of my practice in medical nutrition. Uh, so medical nutrition for me is more of like an umbrella term where I can manage to find you a nutrition therapy for a condition at which you're suffering from. So, uh, right now, you know, I have this other job where I practice literally medically supervised weight loss with a with patients in 34 different clinics in Southern California. However, I could put my other hat on and say, look, I'm a medical nutritionist, a medical nutritionist, and I could actually come up with a regimen 
similar or a intermittent fast that could help you uh, achieve certain goals and outcomes. Um, so I do like intermittent fasting uh, a lot because not only is, has it, you know, has it had a lot of attention um, on it uh, recently in the medical community, but it has been, it has been around forever, really. Um, and what we like about intermittent fasting is the idea of a sort of more of a regulated eating schedule or, um, you know, a time at which you are fasting versus actually eating, um, which is very different from our conventional uh, practice of other regimens like, oh, you must restrict from this type of food or stop eating this macronutrient and whatnot. Um, but the outcome is uh, there's lots of benefits. And, and right now, a lot of the research and clinical data have shown various um, uh, positive findings of what intermittent fasting could uh, entail for an individual. That makes sense. Now, uh, just as a quick aside, I'm just kind of curious as to with the medically supervised weight loss, what exactly is that? And what do you like, what do you, what do you supervise as people are weight are losing weight to help them lose weight? Yeah. Um, I think it's more of a, uh, a terminology of anything. I mean, uh, when it comes to the whole practice of weight loss in the whole nutrition world, uh, there's, different tiers of regimens that we often uh, come across or encounter. So in, in this business, basically, we are a little bit more aggressive. When you're talking about medically supervised weight loss programs, we deviate from more of the commercial-based uh, plans like your Jenny Craig's and Weight Watchers, which focus a little bit more on the community and not so much on uh, intensiveness of the macronutrients and whatnot. So we're medically supervised because we drive calories down to as low as anything under a thousand. By definition in obesity guidelines, uh, this is sort of the uh, number one criteria on what, why you call yourself medical. And we're all supervised by a mid-level or a higher level, like a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, an MD or DO, um, in, in the journey of a patient's um, weight loss regimen. So they're basically a very high-level touch point with these types of personnel. Calories are doing really low. And we also have the option to practice with uh, appetite suppressants, which are uh, Appetite, uh, which are controlled substances, uh, as well as use of injectables with vitamins and amino acids to help you achieve a um, optimal weight loss goal. So, and most people in medically supervised weight loss programs usually lose a little bit more than your typical program, uh, commercial weight loss program. So that's why we are called medically supervised. So, and if I'm correct, during that period, um, you guys are making sure monitoring different levels of, I want to say it's ammonia or nitrogen or different things like that, that can break down in the body from too much muscle breaking down or things breaking down that wouldn't necessarily be good. So, you guys are able to monitor it so somebody isn't really losing something that they shouldn't. Is that accurate? For sure. For sure. We do baseline blood work, also post-program blood work. We monitor your vitals during your um, journey, like if a program is 10 weeks long, people are coming in almost five days a week for 10 weeks to uh, engage with us and we uh, make sure that they're doing correctly and not suffering from side effects and adverse reactions or rapid weight loss as well. Uh, so the monitoring is, is quite uh, aggressive compared to other programs, yes. And so would you monitor somebody who is, intermittent, who is doing intermittent fasting? Um, 
Yes, for sure. I mean, depending on, you know, there's many different variations of intermittent fasting regimens out there now. Um, the most common would be sort of your alternate day, meaning you skip uh, one day at a time on, on going into a 24-hour fast versus a 5-2-2 five, uh, five to two intermittent fasting when you basically eat for five days and then you choose two days to fast in a week um, or even just prolonged hour of intermittent fasting, meaning you fast for 16 uh, hours and then you allow yourself an eating uh, phase of four to six hours. Depending on which one you go with, you know, the fast is uh, you're basically decreasing the intake of food um, and liquids um, in one way or the other where you're driving down a calorie consumption per day. Now, typically, you know, sometimes we all sip, skip a meal here and there and there's no harm done. But if you choose to really uh, pursue this regimen of eating, uh, it would be a good idea to actually sit down with some kind of provider to at least understand what your potential risks are, because there are some. That makes sense. Now, um, <clears throat> so basically, I mean, so you would describe intermittent fasting as periods of eating with periods of not eating. Is that basically it? Uh, yes. It's, it's <clears throat> depending on which regimen you go with. Uh, there's different styles of doing it. Uh, but there, there are actually pretty good clinical data out there where, um, you know, not eating two days of the week is as good as um, not eating uh, 16 hours in each day, seven days a week. So it really just comes down to what uh, accommodates your lifestyle um, and what you're capable of doing. That makes sense. And so what do you generally, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you generally have somebody start out with if they're looking to get into intermittent fasting? You know, is there a certain schedule? Uh, or? Oh, yeah. I mean, if someone is just not, has never done intermittent fasting before and they're a little bit shy about even starting a regimen, uh, first of all, talk to the patient and what they have done in the past, because I think that would be very telling on what their personal fears and anxiety are when it comes to dieting and what they are trying to achieve. You know, what are their goals and, and um, are they in to lose weight or are they in because they have some ongoing symptoms that they don't feel good about that they want to improve. And so if I do start someone on intermittent fasting or any program in general, I would try to understand what their goals are and first and two, uh, what they are capable of seeing themselves doing, you know, levels of willpower, for example. Um, the idea of even skipping a meal, how do you feel about that? Um, and if you do, and uh, how would that play a role in your everyday life? So I always start low, start really not very aggressive. You know, if someone comes in and they tell me that, hey, I eat five meals a day, meaning three meals and two little snacks in between meals, I may even start them off, you know what, let's, let's start cutting out snacks for the week, followed by after you achieve that, let's try then one solid meal and then on and on. And then we'll slowly wean down the caloric and meal frequency until you reach the ultimate you know, um, regimen that you're interested in. Uh, that's, that makes sense. Cause usually, so I try to talk to my, I try to talk to my patients about it, you know, just cause weight loss comes up a lot. And one of the things I say to them is, well, you know, an easy way to do it is just stop eating at 10 or 11 at night and start eating again at 7am or 8am. And, you know, it might not seem like much, but it stops you from, from snacking at night, which can be a big problem for a lot of people. 
you know, um, I had, I've had a couple patients that have lost 20 to 30 pounds just from doing that, which I think is pretty phenomenal. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and it really depends on the baseline of that patient too. Like we're, if we're talking about, you know, the, the sort of general patient population that we deal with, which is majority, I would say 60 to 7% of our uh, American adults are overweight or obese, then you know that by having them decrease the frequency of their intake can make a huge impact. And we're talking about people who probably typically eat several times a day and each meal consists of high carb, dense food, uh, you know, processed foods or even fast food, which you can acquire hundreds of calories in one short sitting. And so this type of lifestyle definitely is pretty aggressive. Um, but a lot of times when patients are ready to sign on to some change in their regimen, they're psychologically ready and they're very motivated and very gung-ho. And so it just depends on, hey, is this person capable of sustaining this in the long run, right? So 30 pounds is very possible, um, but then it also depends on that patient, that individual, you know. And in your practice, I don't know if you see the generic, you know, the general public, meaning uh, typically all pretty much overweight and obese, or do you see a uh, sort of uh, a isolated niche of patient population in your practice? Yes. Yeah. I generally see kind of a combination of all of that. Some people are there looking for to be ultra healthy. Some people are there just trying to get rid of some pain. Some people are there to try and, you know, start the start a positive feedback cycle of they know they need to move. They know they're in pain. They know they're overweight. So let's get this started and let's get things going. And, you know, so <clears throat> I tend to see kind of a combination of people, but one of the things I, I really am, a, I, I talk to a lot of patients about is that and you were touching on this, you know, um, a few big meals a day can really be very detrimental because calories, food is so calorie dense at this point, you know, and I look at uh, one of the things I've seen consistently is that you cannot out exercise a bad diet. You know, your waistline is determined in the kitchen, not in the gym, um, unless you're doing tons of cardio, hours and hours and hours of cardio, like a cyclist or a swimmer. Even, you know, even just with running, it's very difficult to manage your weight just with running, you know, just with cardio, because I, I kind of describe it to my patients, you know, let's say you're on the treadmill for an hour, you're running hard, you're going, you're at such an intensity, you're not able to carry on a conversation, you're breathing that hard, you're burning six or 700 calories, but you go out and have a piece of cheesecake that can be 750 calories, two pieces of pizza can be five to 600 calories. It's very easy to, to, you know, reward yourself for exercising and overdo it and get rid of, you know, kind of uh, get rid of all the benefits, you know, that you got from exercising. Yep. Yep. And also, you know, majority of my patients, I mean, they come in, they're like, look, I don't want to move. I don't want to exercise. I'm telling you now, please don't even talk about it with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so that brings you up need a, good... a magic pill. <laughs> Yeah, and, and there is no magic pill, you know, but I kind of look at it as, you know, it's like, you know, you get a lot of people in the nutrition world who don't necessarily want, and you kind of uh, ignore the exercise world and a lot of people in the exercise world ignore the nutrition world. And I kind of think you need to have a combination of the two, but, you know, if somebody really doesn't want to move, intermittent fasting, I, I found is a great way to help, help them lose some weight. Um, one of the things, that, so how long has intermittent fasting been around? Like, how did it start? Yeah, it's been around actually forever. Like a lot of diets, you know, we practice a ketogenic based diet, which has a lot of history and such and intermittent fasting is also no different. 
um, it's been around since the start of time. If you think about our ancestors, for example, you know, even if you went back a couple generations, even my grandma and grandpa here, you know, they're always talking about how they were uh, like on the verge of starvation and the wars and everything else. And so, but if you go back all the way to our like caveman days, and we're talking about people like looking for their food on a daily basis, you know, foraging and, and hunting. Um, so fasting is not a, a isolated new modern phenomenon. It's been around forever and ever. It's just a matter of how we have evolved to current day. Um, lots of religions actually use this, you know, the idea of fasting for uh, part of their religious beliefs, you know, just like the Buddhist monks or Yom Kippur of the Jewish community or even the Muslims practice Ramadan once, you know, for a whole solid month. Um, but then really in current today's day and age, you know, since the 40s, when research really started to rev up with animal studies on different types of diets to address this issue of um, overweightness and obesity, um, this is now seen as more of a novelty when in reality it's been around forever. That was one of the things that I was reading that fascinated me and it really made a lot of sense in that, you know, back, you know, caveman days or hunter gatherer days, even, you know, kind of like, you know, even up till, you know, like you said, the 19th century, 20th century, you know, food could be scarce at different times. And we just kind of naturally went through periods of eating more and eating less and, you know, periods of not eating very much or periods of intermittent fasting just naturally. And now with food being so widely available, it's, <clears throat> you don't really do that if you don't have to. And, you know, one of the things I kind of like to say to my patients is that, you know, it's like intermittent fasting, it helps basically break you from, you know, because most of the time when we're eating, we're not eating to sustain ourselves, we're eating just for entertainment purposes, you know, and so this helps kind of prevent you from doing that. You know, and the great ex the example I really like is the peanuts that they give us in an airplane. You know, they're not because we're going to starve to death in between destinations, but it's to shut us up, give us something to do, shove something in our mouth so we'll be a little more, you know, pacified. Totally. Yeah, I always, you know, part of my teaching with my patient is understand the difference between between functional eating versus emotional eating, right? And oftentimes, I think most of my patients do actually uh, get in trouble with this whole aspect of emotional eating, just like the peanuts on the plane, or the fact that I'm sitting there watching a late night show after dinner that was half an hour ago. Now I feel like I have to have another snack, when in reality, we know you just had dinner. Um, and we get caught up with this uh, norm, I, I would say modern day normalcy of snacking. You know, we feel like we have to put something in our mouths all the time. Um, and, you know, even like break rooms, for example, and you see all kinds of snack foods, which promotes this idea of it is okay to sort of eat all the time. Um, and so people have to get away from that. You know, do you really need a snack? Or are you just really bored? Can you replace that snacking with something else? Of course we all can, but it's just so hard to get away from that. I've had that same conversation with my 13 year old many times, you know, because with kids, it's like, they'll want to eat something. They'll say, oh, can I have a snack? It's like, and I'll say, okay, we'll have an apple first. Oh, I don't want that. I'm like, well, then you're not really hungry. You know, and they'll say, oh, well, I'm really hungry. I need to eat something. I'm like, you're not going to starve to death in between now and dinner. 
you know, I really try and use that logic with them. And to them, it makes sense. And it kind of clicks with them like, yeah, okay, well, if I'm really hungry, I'll eat the apple first and then I'll have some chips afterwards, you know, something like that. But generally, it's more they're just kind of bored and looking for something to do. So I kind of try, I've been trying to steer them away from that, which can be a little difficult to do, you know, for kids. And I figure for adults, it's even more difficult. Oh, for sure. And I think in our culture as well, I think we use food a lot as, you know, as a way to quiet down children. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I see parents do it in my office when I'm assessing them for weight management and they brought their uh, child in, for example, who's basically, you know, fighting and screaming. And sure enough, bags of candy in her purse, you know, bring it out to quiet the child down, you know, which is kind of awesome. Like, like it's, it's just totally like, didn't make any sense because the sugar would probably activate this kid even more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're you're totally right about that. And so it's funny, when I got together with my wife, her family and her mother were very big on, you know, when we get together, it shouldn't always revolve around food. And with my family, it was always whenever we get together, we'd have a big meal and revolve around food. And it was a really interesting concept to say, hey, well, why don't we do something else as a family versus just eating? And I said, you know, it really made sense and kind of clicked with me. And I was like, that's a good way to put it, you know, so we get together, we'll go skiing, we'll go for hikes, we'll, you know, go for a bike ride, different things like that. So we can spend time together, but without having centering around food, which is, you know, it, it, you know it's a good way to kind of help manage, manage weight, you know? For sure. For sure. Hey, so um, at this point, we're going to pause for one minute. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We're having a fa- I'm having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Amy Lee about nutrition and intermittent fasting. And when we get back, we're going to kind of dive a little deeper into what exactly intermittent fasting is and how do you go about it and what are the benefits and so on and so on. So please stick around. Please, uh, please tune back in. We'll be back with Dr. Amy Lee on Pain-Free Day. Thank you. Are you in pain? Has your doctor told you that you need to start exercising, but you don't know where? Do you want to exercise, but you are in too much pain? Or you start a new exercise routine only to injure yourself and have to stop? How do you exercise when you are in pain? How do you exercise and eat to reduce pain and inflammation? Is your pain associated with what you eat? If you have any of these questions or are interested in any of the topics discussed on Dr. Joshua Cohen's show, then you'll want to check out CohenTriggerPoint.com. You'll find information on all of the topics covered on the show. The site features an extensive library of blogs covering most health topics. There's also an exercise and nutrition program that is designed to get you from not exercising at all to moving, exercising, and eating healthy in consistent ways that are easy on your body and wallet. Join the gentle revolution. Go easy on your body because the rest of the world won't be easy on you. Exercise smarter, not harder. Eat smarter. Don't follow bad diets. Exercise sustainably. Eat sustainably. Have a pain-free day. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Pain-Free Day with Joshua Cohen. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Or send an email to josh at cohentriggerpoint.com. 
Now, back to Pain-Free Day. Welcome back to Pain-Free Day. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Cohen. I'm here with Dr. Amy Lee. She's a nutrition and obesity uh, specialist. Uh, You can find her at at Dr. Amy underscore Lee uh, on Instagram. That's A-M-Y underscore L-E-E. Uh, at Dr. Amy Lee. You can find recipes. You can find lifestyle suggestions. Uh, check out her, uh, her Instagram page. It's full of a lot of very good information. So we're back here talking about intermittent fasting. You know, Dr. Dr. Lee, I'd like to ask you, you know, what are some of the benefits of intermittent fasting? Because I've read that uh, like it can help with our immune system. It can help with gut health, gut health, different things like that. Can you dive a little deeper into that, please? Yeah, so during the intermittent fast, uh, what happens is that uh, the fact that you're not taking in the food can actually cause your body to do various things. Your body actually goes into something what we call a metabolic switch, meaning from your body using a lot of the sugars and carbohydrates and processed foods that you were used to eating uh, as fuel to now switching over to utilizing your fatty acid in your liver, for example, uh, to make an alternative fuel uh, to, to help you sustain. So this metabolic switch actually is super important because besides the fact of, all right, fine, you may lose a little weight in doing so, there are other things that your body are actually going through, uh, such as improvement of other be- metabolic biomarkers uh, that are related to comorbid conditions like diabetes and hypertension and cholesterol. It also helps with brain health because it's known to actually activate various brain uh, neurotrophic uh, peptides and turn on those genes as well. And there's some studies on that. Um, And of course, your immune system, because some of the switches that are involved is turning on some of the uh, resistance to stress and also increasing biomarkers that specifically help with antioxidant or anti-inflammation benefits for the body as well. So lots of different things that are being looked into now and in clinical research and human trials. So it's pretty exciting um, to read up on the intermittent fasting regimen. That's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> so because I, I've read in different places that can help out with gut health, it helps out with our immune system. You're saying it decreases inflammation. Um, one of the things that I've heard is that, you know, by giving your gut a break from digesting, your body's able to divert energy to other areas to help repair and, you know, heal other areas. Um, you know, also I've read as well that it's good just to kind of give your gut a break to give it a break from digesting food, you know, which does a lot of benefit, which has a lot of benefits just but just by doing that, is that accurate? For sure. Um, even giving yourself a little break from the everyday normal food that we eat. And, the, you know, let's just say we, let's just say you're the type of person who eats a lot of processed foods and fast food and you're stuck eating this stuff because, look, you're, you're busy and you're running around and this is what you're exposed to. Now, if you don't really know what you're eating on a daily basis, then likely you're eating a lot of processed materials, preservatives, additives, colors, you know, um, and of course, just sugar in general, all these things, uh, once you stop, and let's just say you give your body a break from that, your body is not exposed to these so-called ingredients that it didn't recognize in the first place. Uh, So in nutrition medicine, a lot of times I see patients who come in with these unexplainable symptoms of fatigue and feeling just groggy. They don't know why they don't they get good night's sleep, according to them, but yet they wake up tired. Um, this could very well be the food source that they've been exposing their bodies on a daily basis. 
So the moment you stop this, you know, um, your body will actually let up and, and start processing and metabolizing differently. And also, once you stop eating and your body does this metabolic switch over to uh, utilizing fatty acid that you've been storing or fat cells that you've been storing from these types of food, it also creates this byproduct, uh, what we call ketones which also acts as a fuel. So when you don't eat sugar, your body has to operate off another fuel source, fuel source, which is ketones. Ketones is not just a fuel for the body and for the brain, but it also serves as a sort of like a metabolic signaling molecule for uh, many other chemical pathways. And some of the research have shown that it activates uh, the way you burn calories and, uh, with carbohydrates and fats as well as activating other genes that play a huge role in um, anti-inflammatory benefits for brain health, uh, as always, uh, also gut health, of course. Um, so, you know, the idea of just not even being, you know, your, your body is not being exposed to those types of foods that you were eating uh, adds that much more benefit to your day when you sort of wean from it. So that makes so much sense. One of the ways I describe it to patients is, you know, I talk to them about inflammation in our bodies. And it's like, if you're in, sh I kind of joke with them where I would say, you know, if you're in shape to eat chicken wings and processed food like that, then you have a lot of inflammation in your body because that means you're not going to feel a little more inflammation in your body. You know, if you have a whole lot of inflammation, right. throwing a little more on top of it, you're not going to feel that much of a difference. But if you clear all that stuff out, you know, then once you start eating a little bit of it, you'll feel it a lot more. Um, I stopped eating dairy. I eat a little bit of it here and there, but since I really slowed down on it, I really feel a big difference when I do eat it and I can feel how inflammatory it is when, when I do eat it. So another thing that I, I, I always kind of found very fascinating, and maybe you could comment on this, is that, you know, another thing I would assume that would help about is, you know, most of most Americans tend to carry around, you know, I've heard, you know, I've read in between five to 10 pounds of digested feces in their colon at any one time, because most people don't eat enough fiber. And that just sits in there and gets more inflamed and more irritated, irritates their gut, creates kind of a leaky gut syndrome, among other things. And I would assume that yep. intermittent fasting is a good way to kind of clear all that stuff out to kind of give them almost like a fresh start. Is that accurate? Yeah, even the idea of giving your body a little time to repair, you know, from all the everyday intakes of things that it wasn't recognizing before. I mean, you can teach your body to recognize these foreign ingredients, you know, like processed foods and, and additives and preservatives, but you can also reset it by removing it and it could bounce back to what it was before. Um, you know, and, and you, you touch a little bit on gut health, for example, you know, we're we're born with a number of uh, bacteria, viruses, and all kinds of you know, basically probiotics in our, in our GI system, our, our digestive tract. And from what we eat and how we exercise and even the level of stress that we uh, hold on to on a daily basis, we have the power to actually alter these components and makeup of probiotics in our gut. So we know from research that patients who are obese or overweight have a very different makeup compared to a normal weight individual. Um, so chicken or egg, you know, is it because of the food that they're eating that caused them to, to gain weight? Or is it because of their genetic foundation that they are prone to weight gain, which can cause their probiotics to shift? Um, that we don't know, you know, people are still looking into all that. But the fact is we have on a daily basis, we have every power to change the way we feel and how we, uh, you know, just sort of how our bodies function. 
And this is no different with what we do uh, when we fast. We're basically allowing our bodies to repair from all these sort of insults that we've been, you know, um, exposing it to. Um, so the feces that you discuss, I mean, I talk about this with my patient on a daily basis almost where, you know, and, and I have patients who love this whole idea of cleansing with a colon cleanse where they get super addicted to it because every time they go in for a 20 minute session, they walk out eight pounds later, right? But the question is, why are you holding on eight pounds of feces or poop, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we talk about fiber and intake and it's shocking to for a lot of people to know that they're supposed to, by recommendation, that they're supposed to eat about uh, 40 grams or more of combination of soluble and insoluble fiber on a daily basis. But I think the average American adult only eat about five to 10 ish in combination of, so it's scary. It's scary. You know, you know, what is really sitting in your gut and what your weight, you know, contributed by, is it truly fat weight or just a lot of poop? So. <laughs> a combination of the two, maybe <laughs> or that or that. So, you know, so it's scary. This brings up another topic, just kind of a quick aside, but what is your opinion of probiotics? You know, um, do you like them? Do you dislike them? You know, I've read things where they say like, you know, they're good to take, but you know, they only, you take them and they only stay in your gut for one to two days. Um, I'm a big fan of them. What, what is your opinion on probiotics? Um, I'm a big fan uh, myself because, you know, it's just, it's, it's, we're replacing something that we're losing, you know, in our current everyday eating culture that uh, we're exposed to. And our bodies are bombarded with ingredients that didn't exist um, 40, 50 years ago. Um, what our ancestors eat are very different from what we eat, but yet the genetic makeup, it's just that we haven't caught up, basically you know, with all the changes of the food industry and coming out with all types of ingredients and processed foods, you know, our body is still very confused by these things. And I don't know about your practice, but with, you know, my practice, I see a lot of patients who are complaining about these symptoms that, that probably didn't even exist like 20, 30 years ago, you know, um, these unexplainable like chronic pain and aches even though all the biomarkers came back negative and don't fit any of the criteria for any autoimmune conditions, for example. But yet every day they wake up with weird joints um, that bothers them um, or they feel tired when they feel like they have had enough of sleep time. And so all these things could be a sort of byproduct or a reflection of what you eat on a daily basis. You know, even the milk that you talked about, you know, personally, I don't like milk personally I just never grew up with milk but I also feel that what we're exposed to now the types of milk that we drink even cow's milk is very different in quality compared to milk that we grew up with you know 30 40 years ago and so with that it's uh, the, the question is what are we really eating are we are we doing our bodies justice in exposing it to all these modern day ingredients that it may not even recognize as food source or ingredients that's funny that you say that because I kind of look at it as, you know, they're food-like products. 
You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. certainly products, you know, but they're, and you can eat them, but they're certainly produced, they're manufactured, they're genetic, they're engineered, they're chemically engineered. A lot of them are chemically engineered to make us as, you know, to make that, make us crave them as much as possible. You know, so we literally, we, they prey on our physiology, so we can't just eat one. You know, I kind of look right. at it as, you know, like right. most of the time we're better off just not even having it in the house because if we do, you're just going to start snacking on it. Yeah, well, it's part of their goals, you know, the food industry. I don't want to, like, start a whole different three-hour podcast with you just on the food industry. Right. But, you know, all the sugars that are in a lot of our foods now, even when the stuff you buy, you know, even a bag of cookies or a bag of chips, it's almost like I don't even think there's any potato in this potato chip you know, bag. <laughs> um, right. And all these ingredients that we don't even know how to pronounce, and I always warn my patients, look, there are 50 different ways to call sugar sugar. So you don't know all the 50 words which I'm sure you don't, likely you're eating sugar. And they have all kinds of nice creative, you know, words now for food ingredients where it sounds healthy, but in reality, when you Google it, it's, it's just sugar. And so it's unfortunate. And I think part of what we're exposed to, or at least um, out of just being a victim of the marketing world, it is what it is, right? I, you don't know your nutrition, likely you're just going to be subjected to that type I of marketing. S- I so agree with that products of marketing, you know, so, so that we don't go down that rabbit hole. What are some contraindications for somebody who is intermittent fasting? So who is, who are some people that should not intermittent fast? Um, you know, intermittent fast is just meaning, you know, you, you start eating a little bit less calories on a scheduled time frame. So like my first sort of like red light, a lot of times would be someone who typically has issues with, um, have water balance issues. So someone with high, a history of high blood pressure, for example, who's not controlled, um, as well as a, a poorly controlled diabetic, for example, when carbohydrates and food source is super important for them um, on a daily basis, especially if those are the ones taking, taking the insulin, um, where they do have to count their carb intake and whatnot. I would say for those individuals, not that you shouldn't try intermittent fasting, but you definitely need uh, some kind of help or guidance from a medical provider. So how would you address somebody that says that they have low blood sugar and they could not intermittent fast because of that? I've, I personally look at it as chances are at least has something to do with just how we're habitually, habituated, you know, used to eating and not used, to, not used to the feeling of being hungry. And that can be kind of upsetting to somebody. Um, how would you explain that to, uh, you know, would you, th- how would you explain it? Uh, you know, with, with the diabetics specifically, right? Yeah, or, you know, not even anybody who's diabetic, but just, you know, regular person who says, oh, you know, if I don't eat, I get dizzy or I get lightheaded or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you have to, it's a, well, first of all, you have to get used to the idea of not eating uh, five meals a day. Or if you're the type of person who is super strict on, you know what, I must have my three meals a day. And I have been culturally trained that three meals is the standard then you really have to question yourself on what is the whole point of you doing this. You truly have to try it to see um, the benefits of it. Um, but I think we're so sort of ingrained in believing that we must have all three solid meals as a normal thing. So for an individual to, to even have any curiosity about it, they have to accept the fact that it's, it's going to be a little bit different, but um, the reason is, and I educate my patients a lot of times on the 
all the great things that their bodies are doing when you do eat less of A, B, or C. Um, and also what you're trying to achieve and how you would achieve that by doing what you're doing. An idea of low sugar, for example, if you're not a diabetic, a lot of times your, your blood sugar is not going to dip so low where it's going to become dangerous because your liver makes sugar. Um, and so there are ways on overcoming symptoms of, of not eating, meaning uh, if you go into uh, these symptoms of what we call ketogenic flu, for example, notorious when you stop eating uh, the types of sugar that you were used to, your body starts converting over, like I talked about earlier, uh, then you will get the side effects of what we call sugar withdrawal. When your body doesn't see all the sugar and all the processed carbs, it's going to kick and scream, and it's going to act out just like a drug addict, for example. And I truly feel that sugar is a drug. And so when you stop eating this stuff, your body will react. And that reaction is reflected by fatigue, uh, lethargy, headaches, um, you feeling just kind of like dry and dehydrated. Some people even have muscle aches. But those things don't last long because you're going to convert over to your new sort of metabolic state. Um, and part of it is, part of the fasting also creates this uh, chemical called ketones. Ketones actually helps with appetite suppression. So you slowly actually feel more satiated with a smaller meal and less frequent meal, just because your body is adapting to a new way of metabolism. And so I always encourage my patients, these are the symptoms you may or may not feel, but when you do, they don't last that long. And you wait for, and you know, obviously it takes a little patience and willpower, wait for it. There are things that you can take or drink that could help you overcome these symptoms. But once you're there, these are all the benefits that you're going to experience. So oftentimes they understand that. That's pretty cool. So now how, like, how would you recommend somebody start out intermittent fasting? Would you recommend them doing like a 12 hour, you know, a six hour, like eight hour fast? Like what do you generally recommend or does, I assume it somewhat depends on the person, but you know, do you generally have, have a schedule that you recommend for people just starting out? Yeah. Uh, some of the literature show have shown that the benefits start even as little as a 12 hour fast. So it's just a matter of, all right, well, then use your sleep time, which is a good eight solid hours. Now, for, you know, for the first week, use your eight hours of sleep as portion of your fast, and then you add four more. Let's start at the minimal. Let's start at the baseline. You add four more hours to that to not eating. So if you're a typical you know, breakfast eater at 7 a.m., perhaps you don't eat your first meal until later on in the afternoon, maybe 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. And then you do it for a week. Let your body get used to that. And then week two, you add another meal. Maybe you don't do lunch or at least in mid-afternoon, your first meal. And you add another four hours to that 12 hours. So now you got 16 hours that you're not eating. But in those times that you're not eating, the key element is drink lots of fluids. You know, the non-caloric fluids is usually a recommended things to take while you're doing the fast. Because we don't need you to become dehydrated and experience some of the potential side effects or adverse reaction of um, being on a caloric restriction. And you can still drink water and herbal teas and whatnot. Those are all fine. Um, and then as time goes on, your body will slowly adapt to it and you'll get used to it. And frankly, a lot of people who have done intermittent fasting actually finds it really like it's a great sort of euphoric high almost. I have some friends, especially one friend in particular, he loves it. He's a very big fan of it. Um, do you personally intermittent fast? I 
have not done one long enough to say I am a pro, but, um, you know, the, during my own personal like tr uh, journey and the whole nutrition training, uh, I was lucky enough to learn the basis of, you know, macronutrients and obviously micronutrients as well. And just the importance of cutting out simple sugars and processed carbs. So I've been on a variation of so-called, I guess, a ketogenic diet myself, where all day long, basically, I drink a couple of my smoothies that I make from home. Um, that's usually about 300, 400 calories in total. And that would sustain me until dinner time, where I eat a high protein, high fiber regimen. That's really my day. Um, and once in a while, a glass of wine, maybe martini, I'm not going to lie. Um, sure, we're all human. All in moderation. Yeah, it's all in moderation. Um, you know, a few months ago, I actually did a cleanse where throughout the day for breakfast and lunch, we basically had, we drank these, uh, uh, what we call sort of superfood drinks. Um, so even if you add up all the calories throughout the, mo the morning hours and afternoon hours, it's probably like 200 calories in total and lots of water. And at night we had our one meal. Um, did it for solid weeks and I managed to lose almost eight pounds, even though I didn't know I had eight pounds to lose. Uh, but it was very telling, you know, it reminded me of all the things that we eat and exposed to on a daily basis that could hold on to a lot of what we call, I call inflammatory water. You know, sometimes your jewelry are super tight versus other days or your belt's a little bit snug versus other days. It's yep. because of water retention, right? So yeah. So and, it's and, nice. I, I use it as more like a reset. Oh, that's pretty cool. So what would a typical dinner be for you? Uh, dinner, well, if you look at my Instagram page, <laughs> usually, <laughs> I'm pretty proud of my uh, cooking skills, probably uh, due to COVID also forcing me to actually stay home and open up my cookbook. But uh, mainly a good piece of lean proteins, probably about four to six ounces, size of my hand. Um, and then my husband usually gets double the portion of that. And I get, and my salads are usually something fresh, um, if not lightly sauteed. So I don't uh, fry my foods or cook it to death. Try to keep everything super fresh and raw uh, when it comes to the vegetables and different and colors as well. But otherwise, I really do stay away from the rice, the noodles, the pasta as much as possible, unless I'm out in restaurants and whatnot. Because I truly feel that you don't need to bring all that to bed with you. So now are you, um, cause are you, so do you also avoid even, do you also avoid complex carbohydrates as well? Oh no, 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 no. I, I, I love my complex carbs and you know, I, no one, no one gains weight from complex carbs and I'm talking about fruits and vegetables, but I really do stay away from the, personally, I'm kind of strict with my own intake, not, uh, because I don't like complex carbs like grains and whatnot. It's just, I don't know how to cook that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, because that's one of the things that I push with my patients where I say, you know, look, you know, definitely stay away from like your simple carbs, you know, but, yeah. you know, complex carbs can be very good for you. You know, I'm a big fan of potatoes as long as you don't throw right. them, you know, pile them up with sour cream and bacon and cheese and stuff like that. Yep. You know, pe people have been subsisting on potatoes for, for centuries and, you know, we do very well with them as long as, you know, we, do, we don't load them up, you know, so that, that, that makes right. a lot of sense now um let me see do, do you exercise i do i do um you know I, I it took me many years to to acquire the enjoyment and exercise but i think i started running when i was probably 18 in high school wasn't part of sports or anything i just decided it was the only way i can sort of release the stress of 
um, growing up in my household and my mom's a little crazy sometimes. So I'm like, you know what, this is a great stress management. And so I actually carried on that through college and medical school. And it's just the one solid thing I enjoy doing. And I know how some people just either hate extra, uh, hate running versus, you know, uh, resistant training. I, I'm not a big fan of resistant training, but I know the importance of it. So I'm always trying to acquire or at least add in a little bit of the resistance training with free weights. My husband and I, we do yoga now um, in our living room, you know, during COVID. And we actually uh, happen to really like it a lot because it does slow us down a little bit. We both have functional ADD. And so uh. we do yoga a couple times a week and we do our daily speed walking, you know, the ones that you fling your arms um, left and right, which might husband totally finds embarrassing um and then once in a while we do pickleball and we just got some new weighted jump ropes too so i'm constantly trying to add in things to keep my interest level high when it comes to the resistant training portion but that makes a big difference and you're totally right about that and i was just listening to some physical therapists talk about you know with exercise they say you have to pick something that you could do repeatedly over and over again and not lose interest in it because you have to do it consistently you know but the same thing with eating you know you have to eat very similarly and have similar you know nutrition plans that you know it's like you want to you know kind of eat like that most of the time you know like you were saying which i'm a big big fan of and that you know everything in moderation if you have like treating yourself every once in a is fine. But unfortunately, in our society, you know, we've, we're encouraged to treat ourselves for every little thing that we do. And you, know, you could be have a, having a celebration every single day if you wanted to. But it's important to kind of try not to do that. You know, with my patients, well, I tend to... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I sorry. Tend, Go ahead. No, uh, I tend to push more kind of like staple foods, you know, say, you know, try and eat, you know, more potatoes, more, you know, you know, uh, beans, salads, things like that, more kind of plainer foods for them, you know, not all of the time, but as your staple. And then, you know, some of the times have more, you know, exotic foods. You know, I think that people have gotten too, too into like, you know, every meal has to be the best meal they've ever had. And that's, you know, you don't, I kind of, I don't think we want to look at it like that. No, I totally agree with you. I think we're too emotional with, what are eating, you know, people find they're like, no, I don't want to eat the same food every day. I'm like, what's wrong with eating the same food every day? <laughs> there yeah. are countries out there where they don't even get to eat, period. Um, I think we tie too much emotions to the things that we eat and we try to be creative too, too much when we don't have to, you know, and they're like, well, I want to make sure I'm eating a good variety of foods where I get all my minerals and vitamins. I'm like, sure, but you will if you stick with this type of eating where every meal there should be fruits and vegetables, every meal there should be some kind of lean proteins. Um, you're not giving up anything when you don't eat the bread and pasta and the pastries and whatnot. But there is this like fear of not having these things and missing out on yeah. life in general. And so as long as you are emotionally eating, then you are going to be stuck because the emotion is fed and by the sugars and the fats and everything else. Um, that make, that's so addicting. So. That makes sense. Um, we are almost out of time. Is there anything you would like to say to close with that, I might, that we might have missed that you think listeners might like to hear? Um, you know, I think intermittent fasting is a, a great regimen, um, but of course, I don't think there is one diet for everyone. And if you do... Uh, con- want to consider it as a different way of lifestyle or a different way of eating, uh, definitely uh, read into it, learn about it, and work with your healthcare providers to, to really discuss and see if it's right for you. 
so you can do it correctly and not have any bad side effects. That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, well, Dr. Amy Lee, thank you very much for joining me on Pain-Free Day. I appreciate it. Once again, it's uh, at Dr. Amy underscore Lee on Instagram. Um, I greatly appreciate you joining me. Uh, please hold on after we uh, end this. I'll talk to you for one more second. But uh, everybody, I hope that you learned something from this. And um, I hope you all have a pain-free day. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Pain-Free Day. Make sure you join Joshua Cohen for another program next Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Now, go enjoy your pain-free day.